I'm Mark Caro, and this is episode 24 of Caro Pop. Our guest this week has one of the most distinct voices in rock, and his band, one of my favorites, has as strange a history as any group out there. Welcome Colin Bloomstone, lead singer of The Zombies. The Zombies formed in the early 1960s while its members were still in school outside London. Keyboardist Rod Argent and bassist Chris White wrote while Colin Bloomstone sang, Paul Atkinson played guitar, and Hugh Grundy played drums. Their first song, Argent's She's Not There, got them a recording contract with Decca and was their first big hit. It's no wonder. Released in late 1964, it's got a jazzy swing and cool quality that set it apart from the bulk of British Invasion releases. One key element was Colin Bloomstone's intimate vocals. He could sound sweet, whispery, and wistful. Well, no one told me about the way she lied. Then would add grit for the R&B covers that the Zombies, like just about every British Invasion band, were doing. Still, it was the originals, such as The Way I Feel Inside, Should I try to hide the way I feel inside? And I remember when I loved her that stood out. She seems so cold to me, and I remember when I loved her. Those two were on the band's 1965 British debut, Begin Here, and the American version of the album included another hit single, Tell Her No. Tell her no, 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 Yet it wasn't until 1968 that the band's second album, Odyssey and Oracle, was released. The Zombies had kept busy all that time, but Decca would release only singles, not albums, and almost none of them were successful. This seems crazy because songs such as Whenever You're Ready, Call Me When You're Ready, Whenever You're Ready, I Love You, I Love You, Yes I Do, But The Words Won't Come. An indication, feel like obvious hits. And the band People later had a hit with I Love You. Colin Bloomstone has thoughts on why these songs didn't break through and the role that the production and mixing may have played. Odyssey and Oracle was the one time the band entered the studio with the intention of making a cohesive album, and they did so at EMI Studios on Abbey Road with Beatles engineers Jeff Emmerich and Peter Vince at their side and John Lennon's Mellotron at their disposal. But the first single, the ultra-catchy tongue-in-cheek Care of Cell 44, was another flop. was the second single, Friends of Mine. The disheartened band broke up before the album even was released in April 1968. Odyssey and Oracle's third U.S. single, Chris White's harmonium-led anti-war song, Butcher's Tale, Western Front, 1914, also went nowhere. If the preacher, he could see those flies wouldn't reach for the sound of guns. It wasn't until February of 1969 that the fourth American single from the album debuted on the Billboard chart. 
time of the season. It became a smash, peaked at number three, and gave the band an album new life. Yet the zombies were no more. Rod Argent and Chris White had formed a new band, Argent, and Colin Bloomstone took a job in an insurance office. To exploit the success of Time of the Season, fake versions of the zombies began touring the U.S., including one featuring future members of a certain popular band. You'll hear about it here. The band Argent also recorded some new songs under the zombies' name for an album that went unreleased for decades. Bloomstone launched a solo career with songs written and produced by Argent and White. She loves the way they love her, and she smiles. She loves every sweet talking More than 20 years ago, Bloomstone and Argent began performing together again. I saw them at the Abbey Pub in Chicago, and their band played an assortment of Zombies, Argent, and solo songs. The next time I saw them, they were billed as the Zombies and focused more on that classic material. Bloomstone says he hadn't realized how beloved those songs were. Now he knows. Odyssey and Oracle is often considered among the greatest albums ever made, and the Zombies were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. The band has a new album in the works and is touring the U.S. the spring and summer. Colin Bloomstone is gracious, good-humored, and candid as he walks us through the Zombies' bizarre history. Was the band influenced by the Beach Boys' harmonies? How on earth could Time of the Season not have been an obvious choice for a single? Why didn't Colin Bloomstone like it at first? And what were he and Rod Argent fighting about when they recorded it? How is it that the Zombies' three non-writers emerged from the band Broke? How does he keep his voice sounding so strong? And which Zombies song has Colin's daughter demanded that he sing at her wedding? Please enjoy Colin Bloomstone on Carol Pop. And as the years go by, she will grow old and die. The roses in her garden fade away. Not one left for her grave. Not a rose for Emily. I was born in a place called Hatfield in Hertfordshire, but I went to school in a place called St. Albans. All the guys in the zombies went to school in St. Albans, although we went to two different schools. That was the, the common denominator between the original members of the zombies. We all went to school in St. Albans in Hertfordshire. Right. Well, this is kind of... Um oversimplifying it but my my sense of that time is that there were sort of your london area bands and then your northern england bands yes uh, it, what was the contrast between those the contrast between them i think everyone was trying to do the same sort of thing of course the bands from the north uh they sang with an accent which it didn't sound like an american accent when they spoke but when they sang their accent sounded similar to an American accent. So I suppose that was a, was a bit of a help for them. Uh, a lot of the Southern bands, they had a sort of a contrived American accent when they sang. You can't sing rock and roll. It's, it's challenging to sing rock and roll in an English accent. You have right. to. You know, Americans, Americans uh, were the original rock and rollers. And so, of course, we've, we've copied you very closely. <laughs> I always felt very guilty about it. In the 60s, you know, we would be playing um, rhythm and blues and blues and rock and roll, and we would be playing in America. And I, I sometimes I wanted to stop the concert and say, 
this this is your music you know we're right this is our interpretation of your music i don't want you to think we've stolen it from you we're just showing our appreciation really but uh, yeah the, uh, certainly there was a, an accent difference but you know there were a lot of similarities between the bands from liverpool and the bands from london because nearly all of them uh started out singing rhythm and blues right nearly all of them certainly the beatles did and uh, and the stones did very much you know and but of course the beatles changed everything because they discovered that they could write their own songs it wasn't true so much on their first album but after that they wrote most of the their own songs and everybody it just woke everyone up to realize yeah we can we can write our own songs and uh, in fact the zombies went through that phase as well at one time we were called the zombies r&b because we played rhythm and blues and um, but then rod argent and chris white found that they could write songs and after that uh, everything changed you know they'd only just with she's not there that's one of rod's very first songs i didn't know he could write songs and he wrote she's not there and after that one of the problems we had was he didn't have a backlog of songs and neither did hmm. chris white but decca records wanted singles every six weeks and it just seems it seems such a a strange way to look at it you know you you're you're just forcing people into into failure really if you keep saying we've got to have another single we've got to have right. another especially when people have just discovered they can write songs and so we ran into a bit of trouble early on just because we didn't have a catalog of songs to record yeah that first decca record begin here uh which i think was just called the zombies in the us and and with slightly different titles uh is this combination of what you're talking about these these r b covers like got my mojo working and roadrunner and uh sticks and stones and then these these originals that are actually fantastic like um you know she's not there which is i guess the first song you guys recorded you'd done a, like a local contest and won a prize with it and uh you know these other songs like uh i remember when i loved her uh the way i feel inside um and there's sort of different styles too did you feel as a singer like were you more comfortable in sort of one area than the other or were you sort of happy doing both no I was, I was happy doing both um i think i was very fortunate in that because i knew the writers i could work on the songs with them and and that way i think you get the best out of the song if you're actually working with the writer and and i i think that you know i come from a background of singing rock and roll and rhythm and blues but i think people probably associate me more with the ballads but when the band first started, that wasn't what we were doing. Um, but I was, I was happy doing whatever Rod and Chris wrote, especially as they were uh, very patient and would go through the songs with me. And, and to this day, I mean, in actual fact, on Monday, I'm going to Rod Argent's house to go through some of the new songs that we'll be playing when we come to the States. We're flying on the 26th of March and, um, We'll, we'll be playing four or five new songs. So we're just going to go through the new songs together. And he was very patient. And we spend a lot of time on um, just getting the, the songs right, you know. And of course, we've got to go through, especially the phrasing. We're both very keen on phrasing. So that I, I like to know exactly how 
the writer saw the phrasing and we spent some time on that. And of course, we've got to go over the old songs because we haven't, we played once in about two and a half years. So uh, some of the, even the songs that I, that I know supposedly well might be a little bit, a little bit distant memories by now, I think. Right. Yeah, you're playing at a wonderful venue here in Chicago, the Old Town School of Folk Music. So I can't wait to see you here. I've seen you here a bunch of times and I've seen you in L.A. also. And uh, and I'm actually going to ask you a little more about the new stuff in a bit, too. Um, but it is it is interesting when you're working with writers who are writing f- for your voice, how you then have to sort of collaborate with because like on one hand, you don't want them telling you how to sing. But on the other hand, you want to know their intent because they're the writer of the song on like how they saw the phrasing or whatever. Absolutely. And, you know, Rod and I often talk about this in interviews. Rod has often said that he learned to write for my voice. And I learned to sing professionally to his songs. And uh, I don't think you ever lose that. There is a kind of a strength between us as as performers. Um, You know, we often do acoustic duos where he he plays piano and, and he's a great harmony singer too, which really helps. When, especially when it's just a, a, an acoustic duo. Um, so it's just me singing and him playing piano and singing harmonies. But we have that strength because we grew up together. And I always feel very relaxed if I'm working with Rod. It's a different feeling to if I'm working with anybody else. I feel safer when I'm, when I'm working with Rod, just because we've worked with one another. There was a huge gap in the middle, but we were still working on the same projects every now and again we, we weren't on tour like we are now but we we got together on, on many projects during that gap in the sort of 80s and 90s um but we've been playing together now for 20 years since um, 1999 so you do get a sort of a, a strength and a confidence out of working okay. with someone for such a long period was working with chris white and on his songs early on different from working on rods in a little, in a, in a bit. I mean, I love Chris, Chris's songs, but very often Rod would help with the arrangement of the song. So he, he didn't really alter the songs. He, he just gave him a bit of a gloss, you know. And I, th- I, I hope Rod, uh, Chris wouldn't mind me saying this, but we all tended to look to Rod for musical leadership, really, and just uh, honing a song once it was written just getting it into shape we we tended to look towards rod i don't know whether this is a factor of your being on deca as opposed to i don't know parlophone or some other label but this the schedule that you talked about at the beginning of you know sending you back into the you know studio to do single after single after single but there are only two actual studio albums released over the lifetime of the band and the rest yeah. was just these singles and, and other things and like how is it that you only had two albums i think it's basically because it, the the early to mid 60s was the time of the single you know the the album became a much more powerful entity towards the end of the 60s and the early 70s albums became all important but in the mid-60s, it was definitely the time of the single. And I don't think record companies, they didn't seem to put that much emphasis on recording albums. The, that first one, we were pushed into the studio too soon. We had, we had a real problem. I hinted at it before that Rod and Chris didn't have a backlog of songs. 
Rod had written two songs before, um, and we did record one of them. Um, I don't think Chris had written a song before. And on top of that, we'd just gone through a phase. We were such huge Beatles fans. We'd gone through a phase just before we recorded She's Not There, where we were performing live a lot of Beatles songs. Well, we couldn't record Beatles songs. Rod and Chris didn't have any other new material. So we had to, to kind of think up some of these old blues uh, tunes. And I think um, I'm trying to remember what they all were, but they might not have been the strongest material that we were playing at that time. It, it's just that we didn't have any choice. And, and, and also it was kind of put upon us to record this album at very short notice. I think we recorded it in two evenings. It was all done very, very quickly. And, uh, you know, I think that first album, it, it's okay, but I, I think you can tell it was done in a rush. And I certainly know it was done in a rush. Uh, but poor Rod, um, he was designated to sing uh, Got My Mojo Working. And he sang it once and he really wasn't happy with it. And he said to our producer, Ken Jones was our producer, he said, look, can I, can I just do that? It's, it's a complete vocal, it's one performance. And he said, could I just sing that again? It really wasn't what how I meant it to be. And Ken Jones said, no, 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 that's fine, that's fine. And that was how it was put together with Teller No. I was just listening to it today because we're going to play it in our live set. So I'm just reminding myself, there's a line in that that's completely mumbled. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> we were recording at about one or two o'clock in the morning. I was asleep just before I recorded the vocal on that. They'd been doing some backing tracks and I just, I nodded off. And I woke up and sang tell her no. And I said, well, that line I've just mumbled this. I think it's in the second chorus. And our producer, Ken Jones, said, no, 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 that's fine. <laughs> Don't worry about that. And that, I think it got in the top five in the charts, tell her no. So in that respect, maybe he was right. I never noticed it, and I've heard it hundreds of times. It's only a couple of words, but they're just, they don't make sense. <laughs> but, uh, so that's just the way things were done in those days. I don't know if it was just Decca. I have a feeling it was all record companies at that time. And it's almost like you're forcing people to into failure because very few people can keep those singles going. Obviously, the, the Beatles did, but very few other bands did. And, and we ran into trouble quite early on. Well, the Beatles, you know, early on, they were splitting, like, Please Please Me is, you know, a lot of covers and originals and, you know, with the Beatles. And then by Hard Day's Night, they had like an album of all originals. And then they go back to doing like half, you know, covers for Beatles for Sale, because I think they were out of songs. But, but the, but the, you know, the label was sort of pushing them to sort of put out an album like every six months. But your label, it seems like they were pushing you to do these singles and then maybe if the singles weren't hits, they wouldn't want to put them on an album. Like, I still don't understand why they didn't just say, hey, you've got all these great other songs, like, you know, I Love You and Whenever You're Ready. And I mean, I just could just go through the list. I mean, you certainly have full albums worth of material that could have been, you know, like your 1965 or 66 album. And, you know, unsaid, there's like this weird gap of what, three years or four years between, I guess, three years between Begin Here and uh, Odyssey and Oracle. Well, you know, I think possibly there were lots of reasons. One is that we worked constantly. So we, and also we didn't work that much in the UK. So we were traveling 
a lot of the time we weren't even here. Um, I don't think there was an appreciation in the UK for the Zombies records as much as there was in America. I, you know, and that's true today as well. Um, we, we don't get the attention here that we get in America or any other country in the world. It's just a very tough market for us in the UK. And then the third thing is, as I said before, I just, I don't think record companies were so interested in albums as, as they are now. And in fact, we had to leave Decca to make our second album. We went to CBS uh, and um, they gave us a very small budget. They gave us a thousand pounds to record an album, which even then is minuscule. Um, and we managed to get into Abbey Road, which is, I've never understood quite how that happened. It, it was nothing to do with me. But as far as I know, up till then, you had to be an EMI, EMI artist to get into Abbey Road. But somehow we got in there, which was great because they had some of the best engineers in the world there. And we recorded with Peter Vince and Jeff Emmerich when we recorded Odyssey and Oracle, two of the best engineers in the world. We were so fortunate. But Abbey Road was expensive and we only had a thousand pounds. So we had to rehearse really, really extensively before we went into the studio. We knew the songs we were going to record. We knew the keys we were going to play in. We knew the arrangements. We're just looking for a performance. And we recorded again. I, I just said with our first album, we recorded really quickly. It was the same with Odyssey and Oracle, but we just had more original material. And I think we had a little bit more time with the first album, Begin Here, it was sort of one take, do it. With this one, we had a second and a third take. I think we recorded it over one summer, but we weren't in there. It was, funnily enough, it was recorded in 67, but a lot of people, because time of the season was a hit a bit later, I think it was a hit in 68 and maybe even 69. A lot hey, of I think it was released think in 68 and big was a hit like early 69. It's, that's a whole other thing we'll get into. That's a crazy, you have a lot of crazy yeah. stories with the zombies, but anyway, go ahead. I know, it's not, a, it's not a typical story at all. Um, but when people think it was recorded later than it was, and you know, people would say at the time, this is really current, you know, you've really got your finger on the pulse, but it was recorded two years before. And I've always thought this, it's very hard to, if you want to record now to, uh, take on board what's current now when the album comes out it'll sound old-fashioned if you if you want to record like that we never did we wanted to record the songs that we liked in the way that we we wanted to record them and we hope that if we like them then other people would like them but uh so we recorded in 1967 in abbey road and um, we recorded very fast well, you had Jeff Emmerich, who had produced, you know, the, the young Wunderkind uh, Beatles engineer who came on for Revolver and had just worked on Sgt. Pepper. And he wrote in his, his I remembered this, and I just pulled it out because uh, I have his memoir that he wrote here, there, and everywhere. And uh, he says, uh, one memorable project I did in the summer of 1967 was an album for the Zombies, which included their hit song, Time of the Season. I enjoyed working with them. They meshed well as a team and were also willing to try new things. And just as important, they wanted to carve out a sound of their own, not just be a clone of the Beatles. I have read that. Yeah, I, I'm a huge fan of Jeff and it's incredibly sad. We, we saw him at the Greek theater backstage 
um, when we were playing there in Los Angeles. And he said several times, we have to work together again. And just as he left, he left before us, he looked back and said, remember, we must work together again. And we were thrilled that he should remember us and, and want to work together again. And of course, there was a tragedy. He, he died about two weeks later. So we never got the opportunity to work with him again. But I think, you know, it, it could have been really exciting to try and get the old team back together. Oh, yeah. It's interesting because like even going because you think of the British invasion groups and a lot of them were, as you were saying, you know, influenced by R&B. But, you know, she's not there. Tell her no. There's this kind of jazzy swing to it that I, I feel like was all your own. Like it was still poppy, but it had this kind of groovy, jazzy thing happening that I don't I can't think of other British bands or other bands at that time that really had the same thing happening as what was happening with you. No, no, I, I agree completely. And I think um, it started off because we were always a keyboard-based band that featured harmonies. And that set us apart right from the beginning. When we first started in 1961, I don't think there were any keyboard bands and, and, and harmonies were not, uh, were not particularly popular, but we always worked on harmonies. And I think that the zombies were influenced by such a wide spectrum of music, starting with classical music, the blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, pop music, modern jazz. It was one of our strengths that we were influenced by this wide spectrum of, of music, but it's also in a way sort of one of our weaknesses because I think a lot of people in the industry didn't quite know where to place us. And that can be quite difficult. You know, what radio stations do you do you approach? How do you promote this record? Because it doesn't quite fit with anything. I mean, it is a slight problem, but it shouldn't put you off following your musical path. I mean, it's great to find um, an original, perhaps unique musical path. So you should stick to it, of course. But with that, you might inherit some slight problems when it comes to promotion and marketing. And I, I think that did affect us a bit. I never understood like how any of those songs wouldn't have been hits. Like I just sort of hear them and I'm thinking, well, obviously this is something that, you know, should have been played on the radio and something that, you know, people would listen to still. And, 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 and just as obviously this stuff still has held up because, you know, people are still listening to it and it has a big impact. Was it, was there any like one single or where, where you guys all thought, Oh, this is, this is our next smash. And then just sort of sat there like, wait, why is this not a big hit? I think there were, there were several. Um, it, it is interesting. Um, uh, this, I have no idea what a hit record is. I didn't think Time of the Season was a hit record, to be absolutely honest. Um, so I'm not the best gauge of this. I'm not setting myself up as some sort of oracle. Um, but I think uh, uh, Whenever You're Ready, uh, possibly, I thought, could have been a hit. There was a song called Is This the Dream that I think I thought at the time was quite commercial. You know, there were, there were several of them, but in the UK, we had even less chart success. And that's one of the things that's, I think is quite interesting about the history of the zombies, that they were, we're probably appreciated more now, 50 years later, than we were at the time. And, and that's on a worldwide basis, even in the UK, which has always been a, a, a challenging 
territory for us. But I think we're appreciated more now than we were back in the 60s. I think of the two bands that had sort of the most kind of sort of they were the most sort of harmonies forward bands sort of throughout the 60s like i'm not counting like mamas and the papas later or maybe i should but but i think of the zombies and the beach boys as being you know two kind of harmonies driven band and yet they're not there there's something distinct about each one like like you guys don't really sound like each other except that you both use have a lot of harmonies were you listening to the beach boys at the time uh, yeah we we certainly did um so when we recorded odyssey and oracle we were aware of um, pet sounds, but we weren't aware of Sergeant Pepper because they'd literally left the studio a day or two before we went into Abbey Road. So we, we didn't meet them. But famously, Rod used John Lennon's Mellotron, which had been right. left behind. If you listen to Odyssey and Oracle, it's almost like a Mellotron album. So I think it would have been very different if John hadn't left his Mellotron behind. And we were picking up acoustic instruments like tambourines and uh, maracas and things, things like that that were strewn around on the floor, which I found very exciting, thinking that the Beatles had been there just before us. So, so we weren't familiar with Sgt. Pepper, but we, we certainly knew of, of Pet Sounds. If I could just go back and talk about some of our singles, I think that there were the actual sound of the records. We had very little to do with that. Our producer was a lovely guy and very sophisticated in musical terms. But I don't think we saw eye to eye on the way the records were uh, produced. The some, I can remember leaving the studio. <clears throat> he wouldn't let us stay for the mixing sessions. He mixed very quickly. So we would go, usually we'd go to the pub, to be honest, and have a few beers. And we'd come back. And I can remember that with one of those songs I just mentioned, Is This the Dream? And I came back and I just didn't recognize it at all from what it had sounded like when I'd left the studio. I actually thought he might have got some kind of cover version together. It didn't sound like us at all. And hmm. I, I honestly think that was one of the problems with our tracks. I don't want to give Ken Jones a hard time because he started it all off for us. And certainly She's Not There, I think sounds great. But some of the later tracks didn't, didn't really sound as we, as we would have liked them. And that's why particularly Rod and Chris wanted to be in charge of the production, production on our, our last album, Odyssey and Oracle. The idea was that we would work without an independent producer. We had these wonderful engineers, right. Jeff Emmerich and Peter Vince. But otherwise, this, the sessions were led by Rod Argent and Chris White. What was wrong with the sound of uh, Is This the Dream and those other songs? Were they just too thin or did they just not capture yeah, I sound, sound? I would say probably my voice is too loud, so which of course means that straight away the backing comes down. And they don't sound big enough. They don't sound tough enough. It sounds, it sounds weak to me. Um, being ultra critical, I, I would say that. Um, and there was the last single we did with Ken Jones, because we were in America all the time, we knew songs that were hits in America that weren't hits in the UK. So we did a cover of a wonderful track by Little Anthony and the Imperials, Think I'm Going Out of My Head. Uh, um, going Out of My Head, I think it's called, actually. Right. And we left that and went on, we went on a quite a long tour of the Far East. And we left it with Ken Jones sounding really strong. 
And when we came back, it was just heartbreaking. He, he'd done, because we were limited on tracks, what had he done? He'd put the lead vocal on one track and on the mix, he'd added a brass section to the lead vocal. So it's, once it's on there, you can't alter it because you put it on with oh. time we mixed it. That's set. You can't mix it out anymore. No. And so when we came back, you couldn't hear the lead vocal. It was all trombones. I think it was four trombones, actually. It was all trombones. And so then after that, I had to go in there and try and double track my vocal to try and get the vocal a bit, a bit louder, which to an extent, we, we managed to do that. But it was just kind of typical of what was going on at the time that we would leave these tracks in the studio with our producer that really sounded pretty strong. And something happened in the mix that, to our ears, didn't enhance what we'd recorded. I'm trying to choose my words carefully because yeah. Ken, Ken's no longer with us. I don't want, don't want to give him a hard time. You know, he, he was a really, really good producer and, and a good uh, musician. But we always felt he was trying to recreate the first session that we did a long time after when, you know, we prog progress, musicians change and bands change. And he always seemed to be trying to recreate that first session and he never really succeeded. And also he didn't mirror what we were doing later on in our career. It was, it fell between two stools. You know, he didn't recreate what we did at the beginning and he couldn't capture what we were doing as we matured as musicians. So it just, it fell in between. And, uh, I think that's one of the reasons why many of our records didn't chart as high as they should have, or in some cases didn't chart at all. Well, and then you have a song like Indication, which is, you know, really yeah, stands out that. among your singles and mm -hmm. it has this awesome, you know, long extended ending, but that song really rocks. And I don't know whether you feel like the version captured there captured all the energy of the performance, but that's another one of these sort of, why doesn't everyone know these songs song kind of songs? I know. Yeah, it was a strong track. And I mean, no one really ever understands why one record's a hit and one record's not. A lot of people in the record industry will tell you, you know, stick with me. I know what a hit record is. I'm, I'm looking for the door as soon as someone starts talking to me like that, because no one really knows what a hit record is. I think the zombies also, and I, this is another sensitive subject. We labored under a, another problem of identity, if you like, or image. Um, it was very sort of cold-hearted uh, in the mid-60s. We were taken into Decca Records. Remember, we were 17 and 18 years old, and we were taken, I remember it, we were taken to the press department, sat down and talked to someone, I have no idea who it was now, and they said, we need an image for you. You can't <laughs> conjure up an image, you know, you just can't do that. Um, you know, the Stones didn't conjure up being bad boys that that's that's them you know they were they were a little you know a little eccentric and a little and, and edgy you know that's that's that was them but what happened with that i'm loath to even say this but what happened to us was they sort of said well, well what have you been doing and we said well basically we've just left school we haven't really been doing that much and so they said well what did you do at school and th this conversation went down a very bizarre route what did you do at school is a weird thing to ask a rock band, but yeah, go ahead. It's wrong from the beginning. Everything is wrong about this. People want rock bands to be dangerous, to be 
pirates and brigands. They don't want them to be schoolboys. And um, th this conversation went from bad to worse when they said, oh, oh you, you passed so many exams? This, was, this is great. So <laughs> our image was, first of all, we came from the South and spoke probably in what people would think of. Do you know, does the word posh, Oh yeah. Does that mean anything? Absolutely, yeah, okay. yes. Well, some people would probably think we spoke in, in a, with a posh accent, but that's where we came from. You know, we could have, we could have manufactured and there were bands that I won't name any names, but there were bands that spoke in what they call mockney. So it's like, it's cockney, but it's not real cockney. It's, it's mockney. Well, we never did that. So that was a disadvantage. We probably seemed to some people to sound a bit posh for a rock and roll band. Nothing could be further from the truth. We all came from very ordinary families. My father was a barber. And when my, when my mother was young, she was a chorus girl. She was a dancer. Um, so we didn't come from, you know, um, old wealth or whatever they say. So we've got the accent. And then we've got the exam results. <laughs> this is our <laughs> What we didn't stand a chance, you know. After that first record, um, we would we were ripped to shreds, and well, we never recovered in the UK from that. That was a half an hour meeting with some person in the press office at Decca, and in the long run, it did us so much damage. They didn't mean to do it. It's just wrong, you know. It's just it's very very shallow thinking, and we didn't know any better because we were so young. Uh, it didn't, wasn't so bad in America because we were part of the British invasion. That, that kind of was our image, really. It wasn't contrived. That was the truth of it. And people don't know about Southern and Northern accents. Right. You came Southern Northern accents in, in America. People don't know. So, and they certainly weren't interested in our exam results. We, and neither, <laughs> were, neither were we. Um, so we escaped that a little bit. But that was another disadvantage um, in the UK. I, even, I don't even like to talk about it, really, because it starts, it, you're acknowledging it, and it all starts up again, you know. We're just, it's, it's bringing all this stuff, it's triggering you like 50, you know, something years yes. later, because it still irritates you so much. Because <laughs> you guys got pigeonholed, and it's, your, and it's about the music, not about your exam scores. Of course it, it's, of course it is. And um, so there were two problems. We had a real problem with image, particularly in the UK. And then I, I think, and I think if you spoke to Roddy or Chris, they would say the same thing. There was a problem with the sound of our records. I just don't think they were gutsy enough. Um, and that's where Odyssey and Oracle was different. It's, that's what the band sounded like. And of course, the irony is that Odyssey and Oracle wasn't successful either to start with. That's a whole new story. It started it getting acknowledged probably 10 or 15 years after it was released. It's uh, people, you know, Tom Petty, later Dave Grohl, people like that in this country, Paul Weller. It's Paul Weller's favorite album. He, he always talks about Odyssey and Oracle. And if he's talking to you about Odyssey and Oracle and you, you don't know it, he will buy you a copy of Odyssey and Oracle and give it to you. Um, so Paul Weller nice. has, has been a huge support for us. It's, it's a strange story because... Odyssey and Oracle, and to some degree, time of the season. They had no promotion and no marketing. They just, I often think they've got a life of their own. They fought through, uh, you know, I, I know that they're not people, you know, they're, but they, they just fought through and demanded that people listen to them.
about the dynamic of the band as you guys went in to record this? Like, how did you guys all sort of fit and get along? Like, were you, were you a pretty cohesive unit as Jeff Emmerich had the impression you were, or was it a little more fragile? I think it worked quite well. I, I, I sort of alluded to it earlier that I think it was very much driven by Rod's musicality and, and Rod's tenacity too. He's, he gets things done, you know, whatever. It's, it's tough making an album. This is going to be lots of disappointments and things go wrong, but Rod gets things done. And I think we all look to Rod for musical guidance and, and it worked. It worked. He would usually arrange the tracks. He would usually tell people literally what to play. Not, not just me, but uh, sometimes the, the bass licks that, that are quite famous on them, on some of those tracks, they, they were written by Rod. And, and some of the, the, the drum uh, fills as well were, were written by Rod. So it did revolve a lot around him, but it worked for us. So I, d I don't see that as a weakness. Um, it, it just worked for us. And uh, that's how we did it. I think I read somewhere that you and Rod had a disagreement over the phrasings on time of the season. <laughs> we, we did in a way. It was the last song to be written. And it, from memory, I think it was finished in the morning before we went into the studio. So I didn't really know it that well. I knew it okay, but I didn't really know it that well. We were... It was, as it was the last track, we were running out of money. So we're, we were up against time. And I can remember standing in front of the microphone and in, in front of me, up above me, there was a big clock. I was very aware of time passing because we were running out of studio time. And there was a red light underneath it on. We, I was aware that we were recording. So I probably was a bit tense myself. I was in the studio on my own singing um, Time of the Season. And Rod was trying to coach me on the phrasing because really I'd only heard the finished thing that day. And things started to get a bit heated, basically because we were running out of time. And Rod was saying, no, no, can you sing that phrase on the beat and push the next phrase? And so on and so on through the song. And I kind of forgot that there was a control room full of people. The band were in there, the engineers, there would be other Abbey Road staff in there. And I'm just hearing Rod on the headphones and talking into the microphone, and he's talking to me. And the language, it, it just, it started off, oh, okay, okay, yeah. And then it goes, <laughs> gradually um, developed into quite a sort of slanging match. And I, I remember saying to him, uh, I won't use the words, but the worst words you can possibly think of were involved in this, in this brief uh, conversation. <laughs> If you're so good, you come in here and you sing it. And Rod said to me, you're the lead singer in this band. You stand there till you get it right. But it was a lot worse than that. The language was atrocious. Uh, but now, I mean, I just look back and laugh now. I think it's hilarious. Uh, I'm really glad that I did stand there and, and get it right. Because obviously, I mean, I think it sold about 2 million copies time of the season. Uh, and it helped eventually to, uh, to get Odyssey and Oracle away. And, and I, I would just say that shortly after that, the session finished and we were all down the pub laughing and joking. It was only a very, it was a, it was an argument, but it didn't last very long. It was, you know, we were all good mates and it just, it just, these things erupt 
every how are you singing it that was different from what uh finally came out well it would be very similar i mean rod's uh, is uh um quite fanatical about how things are phrased it, probably no one else would know any difference um it was 50 years ago so it's hard for me to remember <laughs> but it, it i would be singing the same tune i think it's it's just how i phrased it and and rod he likes things phrased and uh, uh, how he envisaged it. And now there's no question. He will sometimes say to me now when we're recording, well, look, just sing it how you feel it. And I say, no, no, no. Tell me, how did you feel this when you wrote it? And I will get it, you know, because I think there's a right way to sing a song. And so that's what we do. I've heard a version of time of the season where the band keeps playing under the the chorus you know when 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 you sing you know the, all the voices come in it's the time of the and all and everything drops out on the version that we all know but there's a version where it doesn't drop out i'm wondering was that a decision made after the fact or was that all always part of the plan do you know i'd forgotten all about that but when we recorded it the the band played through so I think this is true. It, it, that was done. That would have been Jeff Emmerich because he certainly recorded that track. I think he mixed it too. So they would have just taken the faders down uh, and, right. and, left, and, and left the, vo the voices. It, it wasn't recorded that way. Uh, that was done in the mix. So it's, it's interesting because you can't imagine it any other way now, but but that we didn't record it that way. I, I completely forgotten. Yeah, yeah, no, it's startling when you go back and hear that other version and you think, oh, that's not what they were thinking. But it's because uh, it's such it feels like such an intrinsic part of the song. It's so dramatic. Uh -huh. the way those vocals and that wonderful chorus are just set off like that. And then, you know, and then you have the, the come, comes back in and it just makes it that much more dramatic. Absolutely. And, and also another hook in the song is that dun, 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 dun. I remember Rob was sitting there and he said, you know, I I can hear a hand clap and a breath and no one really knew what he was talking about. And I, again, I think it was Jeff Emmerich and he said, well, go and do it, see what it sounds like. And that's just, it's one take through. It was just an idea that Rod had. And it, it's, you know, it is a real strong part of the track. I think it's, it's great when things come together like that, especially when they come together quickly. And uh, he just said, I can, I can hear this hand clap and a breath went in and did it one take. And that was it. Retrospect is a crazy thing, but that song has lived with us for, you know, 50 something years. It's just part of our culture. You hear it on the radio all the time. It's a fantastic song. It doesn't, it doesn't, it never sounds old either. It's very, it's, it's totally groovy in the way that, you know, with the, you know, the hand claps and the, and the rhythm and the melody and the harmonies. Um, yet at the time, like that was the third single released from that album. And, uh, the the big disappointment for you as i understand it was as a band is that the first single was care of cell 44 which is the kickoff track from that record which is a wonderful song and that didn't do anything on either side of the atlantic and then uh i think friends of mine was the second single and that didn't do anything and by then you guys were like totally disheartened and time of the season hadn't even been released as a single at that point because nobody saw the inevitability of oh here's the song that's going to be played for 50 something years in you know classic rotation it is strange isn't it funnily enough i've got a feeling that in america butcher's tale was released first which is 
you know, it's an unlikely track. Of course, the Vietnam War was tragically going on at that time. That song is actually written about the First World War. Right. Uh, but there were several tracks released in America before Time of the Season was released. I know that in America, in the UK, Care of Self 44 was released first, and I thought that was the most commercial track on a record. So I'll never get employed in an A&R department because I know nothing. Um, and it, it didn't even get played on the radio. And, and that was one of the main reasons that the band started thinking maybe it's time to get involved in other projects. It was something that we just all agreed on, really. Uh, Care of Self 44 came out. It, it wasn't played. Um, later, Odyssey and Oracle. No, we, the band finished before Odyssey and Oracle was even released, which, looking back, was definitely a mistake. The Time of the Season was the third or the fourth single released in America. And it was a very, it was, uh, legend has it that there was one DJ in Boise, Idaho that wouldn't stop playing that track. And it just spread bit by bit across the country. It took about six months to get in the top 10. It was a very slow burner, do they call them? Right. Um, and it, it was a huge hit and it, it is still played a lot on the radio but in spite of all that it was a hit in every country in the world except the uk it's really strange uh, it was never a hit in the uk people know it because it's been using commercials and on jingles and people i think people think it was a hit here but it wasn't yeah no i saw that it still didn't chart there it is very strange i, I assume when you play yeah. concerts in the uk and you play that song, it gets a pretty good response. Oh, it's, it, it goes down incredibly well. People know it. It's just, the Zombies career is a little strange. You know, one of our best known songs, Time of the Season, was never a hit in the country that we come from. It's, it's really bizarre. And Odyssey and Oracle also was very nearly not released at all. Uh, Al Cooper from Blood, Sweat and Tears had just signed to become a produ staff producer at CBS. And on his first morning, he went into Clive Davis, very brave of him to do this. Uh, Clive Davis was the most powerful person in the record industry, still is one of the most powerful. And uh, Al Cooper went in and said, whatever we do at, C at CBS Records, we have to get this album, Odyssey and Oracle. He'd been in London. He bought about 200 albums and Odyssey and Oracle absolutely stuck out to him. He said, we have to get this album for CBS. And Clive Davis said, well, we already have that album, you know, it's, uh, we weren't going to even release it. So if Al Cooper hadn't have fought for Odyssey and Oracle, it would never have even been released. I mean, you know, there's so much chance, but in life there's so much chance, but in the zombies career, things could have gone so differently so many different times. And that's certainly one of them. We owe a huge debt to Al Cooper. Right. And by that time, you guys weren't even playing together, right? But no, we weren't. We were all, off doing different things. Um, yeah, the band had finished by the time Odyssey and Oracle was released. And so we weren't there to promote it. Maybe that's one of the reasons Odyssey and Oracle wasn't really a hit. I think it went into the Billboard chart for one week at 98 and then disappeared. So even though Time of the Season was a hit, Odyssey and Oracle wasn't a hit. But in later life, it's gone on to sell in huge quantities. Um, so, you know, we're really fortunate, but there's nothing there's nothing sort of predictable about the zombies career. It's really strange. Yeah. Odyssey and Oracle was released in April of 68. And 
I think time of the season peaked in maybe March of 69. I mean, like well after the fact and, you know, and, and the first singles from that record were released in later 67. So you're talking about this year and a half lag time of, you know, the first material being released and then people discovering it. I know it's, it is bizarre, but what I've learned is that you can't judge a career just by chart positions. And well, obviously, yeah. A lot of people do that. A lot of people do do that. They'll just get out one of these reference books, you know, and just see how many hits you've had and all, all that kind of thing. But there are bands that are huge attractions today because they're just great players who have never had hit singles. But they're great players. They write great songs. They just don't fit into some of the radio formats, so they won't get played and they won't have hit singles. And probably don't care and don't even want to have hit singles. Their albums may may sell, but the singles won't. But you know, when it comes to the live circuit, people judge you on your performance. A, a chart record will only get you so far. It, it'll open a few doors. There's no two ways about that. But you've got to back it up with with uh, worthwhile performances. When when you guys finished recording Odyssey and Oracle and all of the rush and everything else, did you think, well, we just made a great record? Um, it's very hard to gauge um, anything that you've been involved in, I think. But I can remember quite clearly that I felt it was the best that we could do. And, and then from thinking that it's the best we can do, when it wasn't successful, it starts to make you think, well, maybe it's, it's time we should try other things. I don't think I was a real a leader in, in the band uh, folding. I, I, was, I remember we had this meeting when we discussed it all. I, I won't go into details of who said what, but I didn't say anything. I, I walked in and I didn't say anything. And I left that room and I thought, I have no idea what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. I didn't have a plan B. And I wish I now it's a regret. I wish I'd spoken up and at least said how I felt, even if it was that the band should finish. I just wish I'd said something, but I didn't mm. say anything. And um, so, as I said, I didn't have a plan B. It was a bit scary. I saw an interview with Rod Argent where he said that after Time of the Season became a hit, you guys were offered like a million dollars to tour the U.S., but by that time you were all doing other things. And of course, I was like, well, why didn't you just do it? You know, it's like, you know, why not reform the band at that point instead of, um, you know, having these fake zombies bands going around? Not that you knew that that was going to happen. Valid, very valid argument. And I, I, I think that possibly we should have done that, even if it was a farewell tour. Looking back with hindsight, if it was a farewell tour, I think a lot of the problem probably was that Rod and Chris White were very committed to Argent, Rod's second band. Rod and Chris both wrote for Argent and co-produced them. Chris said he didn't want to play anymore. He wasn't going to tour with them, but he was involved in the writing and production. And they were very committed to that band. And I think they felt they, they couldn't go back after the work that they'd done. But with the benefit of hindsight, I think at least we should, we'd never even discussed it. I think we should have discussed it. Um, a, perhaps a farewell tour. Argent could have opened for us. I can see, I can see the whole thing, you know. Um, but it wasn't to be. We didn't even discuss it. I, I think everyone had. It, it, there'd been too long a gap because time of the season, as we were just discussing, was a hit a long time after it was recorded. We 
we were different people by then. But looking back, I understand exactly what you're saying with the benefit of hindsight. Possibly we should have at least had one more tour. It's, it's hard to argue against that, but it wasn't to be. I would imagine that one of the factors was that, and, it, and it's sort of like, it's crazy to look at it you know, now because you know music doesn't evolve in the same way. But back in the 60s, like there was a difference between what was coming out in 67 and 68 and 69 and 70. Like music was changing so fast. And I'm wondering whether, you know, like Rod, they had this idea for this band Argent and it was just going to be kind of a heavier band than what the Zombies was. And and it was like, well, we need to progress in that direction because that's where music is going as opposed to, you know, we can still do what we want to do within the umbrella of the Zombies. Uh, I think there's something in that, but I don't think they were thinking they wanted to be have a tougher band because that's the way music was going. I think they just wanted a, a tougher band. I, Rod and Chris have never followed trends, but that's what they wanted to do. Right. I think it would have been hard for Rod to go back to the zombies after playing with Argent. Um, so, well, he, obviously, he, he, you know, it didn't happen, and that's probably one of the reasons. I mean, strangely enough, about that time, I started making records as a solo artist as well. I, I, when the band finished, we had a, an interesting management company who they weren't involved in the publishing or the record side of the zombies. It was only in live work management, and, and they were also our agents. And they managed to earn us absolutely nothing. Um, it, was, it was quite an intriguing situation, really. Um, you can interpret it how you want. They either weren't very good or something perhaps a bit more sinister was going on. But at the end of the band, the three non-writers, because the writers had a different income stream from another right. company, the three non-writers had no money. I remember I had 500 pounds at the end of the tour, at the end of the band. And a lot of that was from selling our equipment and our truck and all things like that. Oh. My, my share of that really bolstered that, my 500 pounds. And so the three of us, uh, uh, Hugh, Grundy, Paul Axis and myself, we had to go out and get jobs. And, and uh, so when time of the season was a hit, I was working in a busy office in London, just doing a nine to five. You're selling insurance, right? I wasn't selling insurance because I didn't know anything about insurance. I, I was a clerk, you know, I was working in, a, in an office doing clerical work. Um, my bosses were selling insurance. I worked for the people that were selling wow. insurance because I'm a singer. How, what, what do I know about insurance? <laughs> I've often said to people, I couldn't even spell insurance. It was, uh, I wasn't, people get the wrong idea that it, was, it wasn't particularly a career move. I just needed to make some cash. I, I, it wasn't like to get a second car or to buy a bigger house. It was to eat. I, I had to do something. And that was the first job I was offered. And I took it. Um, as only someone like me could do by the time I paid a train fare into London, a bit of rent, um, a couple of other things. I think I was actually working at a loss. So uh, I could have just saved myself the trouble of, of this. It wasn't even a career. Second career in, in commerce. I could have not bothered really and just waited if, I, if I'd have known that the record industry would come knocking uh, about a year, a year on. I started off, I was pushed into the burglary department in this huge con 
concern, you know, on several different floors in the, in the middle of London. Very, very busy. And I couldn't work out. I'm going to work in the burglary department. My first thought was, we might be arranging burglaries. I, I have no <laughs> idea what, what burglary department was. Obviously, we were insuring against burglaries, I presume. I didn't really ever work out what it was all about. You, you know, you, you need to be doing that for a few years to understand what's going on, really. And I didn't do it. I did it for a few months. It seems like a lot of bands end up splitting. And I'm not saying this is why the zombies split, but I've, I've spoken to people in bands and, and one of the tensions often is the the sort of income disparity between the writers and the non-writers and uh you know then you have some bands like you know rem where they just shared all the publishing um i'm just wondering if there's something about the way the industry is set up that it just makes it harder on bands to have these different roles because of that disparity yeah i think it is a bit difficult um because it certainly puts the writers in a in a different position to the rest of the band it wouldn't be so bad if we'd been earning money on the road, but we didn't earn money on the road. And so it, it, it got very difficult for the non-writers. It wasn't so much that we were envious or resented. See, I think if you haven't got good songs, you can all pack up and go home. It all starts with a song. And we've got two really fine writers in the band, and I was eternally grateful for that. But... So I, I wasn't envious of them earning more than me, but it was very difficult, the amount that we were earning. It, it really restricted us, you know. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't do anything. I, I, couldn't, I could hardly go out because I just didn't have any money. And it wasn't just us. It's, this is not a sob story. A lot of bands in the 60s were the same. Um, they just never earned any money. I think between the industry and bad management contracts and, you know, there were, there were, there were a lot of bands that just did not, musicians that did not get what they should have absolutely i don't you know i hope it doesn't happen now it probably still does but in the 60s it was very it was prevalent you're very prevalent um and it, it it's it's not a nice story really that uh, people who understood the business better than us you know more sophisticated businessmen can could get away with with well with murder and, you know, looking back, I know exactly how they did it. I can remember we had a conversation. Um, I, w I said to the guys, you know, this isn't right. We're just not earning the, the kind of money we should be earning. And I, I'm not talking about us being rich. I'm talking about us living, you know. And I think it was Chris White said to me, well, tell us what's happening and we'll back you. And I, I couldn't. And, but I knew, but it hadn't. Uh, come together in my mind I knew what was going on um, and it's it's really obvious now like I, I don't know if I really want to go into details because I don't want to be sued you know? <laughs> but it was pretty it was it was pretty basic what they were doing and um, I even now it's sometimes difficult you have to trust you have to trust someone and it's it's good if that someone can be your manager and, and then you just have to hope for the best, really. Right. But certainly in the 60s, you know, we were ripped off atrociously. And uh, it's, it's a bit sad because possibly if that hadn't happened, the band would at least carried on a, a bit longer. But, you know, what happened happened. Just, that's it.
So after Time of the Season was a hit, there's this there's this album that followed called that's that's become known as R.I.P. And the first half of it, uh, side one, is is basically Argent doing these you know songs under the the name Zombies. So you have uh, Chris and Rod and the Argent guys, and then side two is these sort of dusted off older tracks that I guess hadn't been released. So you're singing all the songs on side two, and I think Rod is singing like Imagine the Swan and Smoky Day and Love the way she loves her. Um, were you ever approached to just sing those songs, or like how did that end up happening? with that record no, i was very much um as i remember it it was very much rob and chris in the driving seat at that point and um we did have these demos that had never been used like uh walking in the sun right and a, a few other things and i i might have even i think what we did we put harmonies on them i'm not sure that i re-sang the lead vocal we, we put harmonies on and we might have added some percussion or something like that we certainly did um, add to them, and but the songs that were recorded basically with Argent, no, I was never asked to sing those songs. I didn't have very much to do with it. I just went in and sang the songs I was asked to sing, and, and that was it. I mean, it wasn't released at the time anyway, but it's sort of weird that they would record Zombies material and you wouldn't be singing on it, and that they would be using this other band. Well, I don't think it was considered to be Zombies material at the time. Um, it, it was recorded after the Zombies had finished. Like, imagine the Swan. I think actually it was released, uh, that particular single was released as Argent Zombies. It wasn't the Zombies. So it was a kind of... Oh, a, really? It was an in-between situation. Okay. And yeah, because I think of that as being a, a, sort of the last zombie single, sort of the posthumous. Well, I, I wasn't involved in that. And, yeah, and no, I know. And Hugh and Chris wasn't involved in it. it so it was Argent. Um, and then some of those other tracks that you mentioned, they were recorded by Argent for Argent. I don't, I don't know why. I, I don't think Argent ever put them out. I don't know why. Um, and then two of the songs ended up on your solo debut one year. So you recorded Smoky yeah. Day and She Loves the Way They Love Her. I did. And She Loves the Way They Love Her. Argent are playing on that, but it's, it's re-recorded. We recorded the first two tracks from my one-year album at a studio called Sound Technique. And the first two tracks were She Loves the Way They Love Her and Misty Roses. And then after that, we managed to get into Abbey Road. And there was a slight feeling of deja vu because we were in Studio 3. It was... Rod, Chris, and myself, and Peter Vince was engineering. And it was it was a very similar feel to Odyssey and Oracle, really. But it was just, um, I think that would have been sort of 1970. And uh, I was very glad that Rod and Chris offered me some songs that those two that you just mentioned had been um, Smoky Day and She Loves the Way the Lover had been recorded before. But there were some other ones, um, her song, was one um i can't remember any others that rod and chris wrote but maybe maybe that was it maybe it was just her song but um i managed to get from chris because basically because argent wanted to do harder hitting material i was really fortunate because i think a lot of rod and chris's songs were played to argent first and if they didn't have that edge if they weren't quite tough um they would filter down to me right. i was very glad to record them myself some on my second and even on my third solo album that rod and chris had written that i sort of inherited yeah i think they didn't they produce that and ennismore which uh came out the next year 
Yeah, Rod and Chris produced Ennismore, and then Rod was too tied up with Argent to do the third one. It was called Journey, and Chris did that on his own. Right. Um, so, and, and with all those albums, uh, Rod and Chris wrote songs for me. So it was great. But even then, you see, looking back, those, the, the first three albums were recorded in a very short period of time. And it probably would have benefited everyone if there'd been a little bit more time to get the songs together, to, to rehearse and, and sort things out. But in those days, people just expected you to pretty much record an album a year. But when you're constantly on the road, there's very little time to write and there's little time to record as well. It, it gets, it's really challenging to get everything together. It, it just becomes very pressured. Um, I, you know, I don't work like that anymore. I, I wouldn't dream of doing that now. Right. The sound of those records, was that what, did you think as a solo artist, I want to make records that sound like this, that's this kind of this gentle, you know, beautiful pop records? Like, did you go into it with that or was that driven by the songs? I think it was, it was driven by the songs, but it was, it was quite natural for me. I mean, especially on that first album, we were introduced to a wonderful string arranger called Chris Gunning. And it's, it's quite, it's a unique sound. It's quite predominantly driven by a string quartet feel. Sometimes it's a bigger string section than a quartet, but it's still written in the same way as a quartet would play. And I remember the brief that Chris Gunning was given was to think of Bartok. Think of Bartok when you're, you know, normally strings just play long notes in, in the background, but this is very different. These strings are playing very definite parts and there's no rhythm section playing with them. The rhythm comes from the strings. And uh, I, I, I'm not sure anyone had done anything up until that time that was anywhere like it. And I don't think they've done anything like it since either. It's got a very unique feel. And we've just been celebrating the 50th anniversary of the release of One Year. It was released right. in 1971. And I was going to come over to New York and Los Angeles and play that album in its entirety. But... Unfortunately, because of the pandemic, I wasn't able to do it. So I, I, I don't know now if and when we'll, we'll ever do it because the year now is completely blocked out with the uh, zombies touring. But I would have liked to have done it at least once. Um, and it's an album I'm very fond of. Oh, it's a, it's a terrific. I, I bought the vinyl of it at some point. You know, after I got into the zombies, I chased that one down as well. And it's, you know... And it's a, it's a beautiful record. Um, listening, I was listening to it again, and it was sort of striking me that it, it's not it's not really the same as Nick Drake, but I could see sort of like listening to these sort of in close proximity, and that just just sort of this British sort of gentle folk, you know, melodicism going on. I'm not describing it well, but but I know I know what you mean, and people have said that to me before. You know, was I influenced by Nick Drake? But I. I'd never heard Nick Drake before that album. So if there is a similarity, it's just that we were working independently in the same sort of areas. I've heard Nick Drake after that album, but never before. I think that um, my writing was very influenced by a singer, another English singer-songwriter called Duncan Brown. And I do recommend, if you get a chance, you, you check out his albums. Um, he, 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 did, he had one big hit single in the UK and he, he also had some success with his albums as well. He had some hits in Europe, but 
people are not so familiar with him now, but he was a wonderful writer. And I knew him quite well. There was a time when we shared a flat with his managers called Patrick Lacey. And um, he really encouraged me in my writing because in The Zombies, I only wrote two songs. I was just learning the whole, or just beginning to learn the whole uh, process of writing songs when I was in The Zombies. And then as a solo artist, you know, I've written quite a lot of my my tracks. But I, in my early years, I was very influenced by Duncan Brown. Do you enjoy the writing aspect of it now? Absolutely. Uh, for me, the the real pleasure in, in in being in the music business is if you can write the song, record it, and, and, you know, and you see it take on a, a completely different atmosphere as it develops in the studio. Hopefully you've got wonderful musicians who are in tune with what you're trying to do, and, and they will take that song on and it becomes something else. And then you rehearse it with a band and you go out and you play live and you're playing, you know, hopefully to an appreciative audience. And you can remember the original spark that started that song. It could be a title, it could be a chord change, it can be anything that starts a song. And you've seen it go through that whole process of this going into the studio and then going out performing it to an audience. And to me, that's, that's the magical journey. Um, if you can do that, it's, it's one that's thrilling. I, I saw you and Rod play at a place called the Abbey Pub in Chicago. Um, and it was billed, I think, as Colin Bloomstone and, uh, and Rod Argent. And, but it was yeah. that band that you'd been playing with. And it was wonderful. And I was standing really close. And I'm like, oh, my God. You know? yeah, I and, can remember and, that. And then I was I was in LA a, a few years later, and I, I, I might have been the Troubadour. I was staying I was staying at a hotel on Sunset Strip, and I was walking, just taking a walk, because like one of the things I like to do in LA is to try to take walks because nobody walks in LA. And and I look on the marquee, and it says the Zombies, and I was like, oh. And I just immediately bought a ticket and then saw you you there, and it was the Zombies, but it was the same band, but it was obviously a more zombie centric approach. And I'm wondering, sort of, what was the sort of the pivot for you and embracing that you guys were the zombies again. And, you, you know, what did you have to sort of take a leap to do that aside from the, you know, the marketing advantages of it? It, it was a leap, actually. I mean, there's two separate things here. Neither Rod nor myself realized how popular zombie music was. We got together by chance in 1999, I was touring as a solo artist and I had a keyboard player that kept not showing up. He was a lovely guy, but he had a weakness in that if anybody asked him to play a gig playing his songs, you know, he wasn't a famous writer or anything, but if you, you, if you want to play down at the coffee bar at the end of the road and we'd love you to play some of your songs, he would just go and I would be left with no keyboard player. <laughs> and I thought that if, if I went on the way I was going, the last gig I played with that guy, he wasn't there, someone else depth for him, who didn't know me, didn't know any of my songs. It was We had no rehearsal time, we just had to bluff it. I thought I was gonna have a heart attack because I just didn't know what was going on. And you know, we played for an hour and a half and no one knew what was going on. And so I rang Rod and I said, Rod was a very successful producer at that time, he wasn't playing live. And I said, look, I've got six dates left on this tour. Is there any chance you could just come out and play these six dates with me? And I didn't think he would say he wanted to do it. But he said, okay, I'll do those six dates, but I, I don't want to do any more than that. I don't want to get back on the road again. But he enjoyed it so much that we just kept going. Here we are 
20 something years later, we just kept going. Right. He was adamant. Well, first of all, we, as I said, we didn't realize how popular the zombies were. So when we played, we would play some of my solo stuff, some stuff, solo stuff of his. We played very few zombie tracks and people were forever coming up and saying, well, can you play more zombie tunes? So bit by bit, we did. But Rod was really adamant that we shouldn't be called the zombies because, you know, he said, we're not the zombies. And it, it was about six or seven years. So we started in 99. It would have been, you know, 2006, 2007, when he, he just suddenly said, we've just finished an album because we've, we've recorded four or five albums since we got back together again. And the last one actually charted, got into the Billboard Top 100, which was totally unexpected, but it was a wonderful surprise. But um, Rob was talking about the artwork on one of our albums, and he, he, he'd got a, an idea for the visual. And he said, and it would be this, and it would be the zombies. And I thought, did I hear what he just said? Because <laughs> he was so adamant he didn't want the zombies' name used. And then... I just, I just kept quiet, really. <laughs> it became the zombies. We did have some conversations. Uh, Paul Atkinson, sadly, is not with us anymore. But we did have some conversations with uh, Hugh Grundy and Chris White about us using that name. And they gave us our blessing. And by then, we were playing a lot of zombie tunes. And we'd started to record new albums. So we, were, we in effect, played new zombie tunes because these new albums were went under the heading of the zombies. But if ever anybody fought using, to, to use a name, it was Rod. He really didn't want to do it. I'm not quite sure uh, why he changed his mind. I, I guess he just thought we'd evolved into the zombies. We were, we were playing a zombie set, so why not call it the zombies? Because it's, it's more honest to do that. Otherwise, people might expect something totally different. Yeah, by then you didn't have the fake zombies bands trying to use your name which was which i alluded to earlier but that's still one of the strangest things where you had like future members of zz top going around in the u.s as the zombies and then i think what in the, in, in the 80s wasn't there like another zombies where they had a hugh grundy who wasn't the same hugh grundy who was playing bass or something that's right well, just talking about the foot though i think there were three three bands that i knew of in the 60s and you, you've just talked about the two guys from zz top listen Good luck to them. I want to see musicians <laughs> employed. So we weren't using the name and, and they, they got some work out of it. So, so good luck to them. But um, Chris White was over in New York and he was in the offices of Rolling Stone magazine. And they said, you know, they, they did a front page about uh, phony zombies and, and phony animals as well. Uh, the bands right. from the animals. And they got Chris White to phone up one of the managers of one of the zombies bands. And of course he thought he was talking to a journalist. He didn't know he was talking to Chris White. And uh, he said, well, why we're we doing this? We're trying to honor the life of the lead singer of the zombies who was tragically killed in a car crash. <laughs> and Chris is, what? what are you talking about? And so this was reported in Rolling Stone that, you know, this guy was talking about me dying. And at the time, I wrote a song about that. Yesterday in Rolling Stone, I read, a man said, I'm dead. And these demos have just been refound after 50 years. Chris White's wow. song is in Chris White's attic. And they've been added 
to the one-year release that just happened, the 50th anniversary, they added 14 demos, I think. And one of them was a demo of that song with the guy proclaiming that the Zombies lead singer had died and that's why they'd formed these phony bands. So, you know, I felt a bit better about that. Now I know why there's phony bands because I'm dead. Um, it's, uh, you have something in common with Paul McCartney now. Yes, absolutely. And the other story I can tell about the later band, which was in the 80s, um, uh, they had a Hugh Grundy in the band, but he played bass instead of the drums. And they, I think they were saying that Hugh felt, and he'd been in the band long enough, he wanted to get out into the front line and play bass rather than sit behind the drums. But <laughs> the bass player was sort of 5'8". He was called Hugh Grundy, 5'8". Hugh's, you know, nearly six foot. Um, and of course he played bass and, and not drums. It's, it's ridiculous. We tried to stop them as best we could. It's not that easy because the band's moving on all the time. The problem with them was that they weren't very good. They were getting really bad reviews. And I thought, well, if we're going to have bands pretending to be the zombies, at least they should be good. And they weren't good. I, I talked to the Musicians Union. I tried to approach their manager. I remember his name to this day. And eventually they stopped. And I thought, well, I don't know what I've done, but whatever I've done, it stopped them. And then I, then I was told the true story of what happened. They weren't a very good band. They played one night, got back in, you know, terrible reaction, got back into the dressing room. And in, and in true American spirit of uh, the cowboy world, one of the zombie fans went into the dressing room and pulled a gun on them and said, you are not the zombies stop this, huh. don't, don't play anymore. And especially for, for British people who've probably never seen a gun in their life. I think that was enough for them. So I thought it was something that I did that stopped them. There's <laughs> some I, combination I, of your gentle persuasion and a gun in their face. And I must say, I'm not advocating that people should settle their differences with a gun. Absolutely not. Uh, um, and so from a, you know, 25 years distance and 3,000 miles away, I can joke about it, but it's, it's not a good idea to do that. But it, in this instance, it was very effective. And that's how the last zombie imposter band finished. Well, now that you're in a real zombie band, um, zombies band, I should say, is there, tell me about just sort of the feeling of sharing these songs with people after so long. And then and are there some that really connect with people that you just at the time didn't realize, oh, this would be like the one that would really get people? Because I can think of a few myself. I think, well, um, I, I tell you one, the way I feel inside is a song that people really love and it keeps turning up in films and TV. It was on the TV, BBC One. It's a big station in the UK, one of them. Uh, and it, it, it turned up on a TV program about four days ago. It's a song that was recorded in five minutes, 50 years ago. Um, that's Less than two minutes long. It's two minutes long, yes. Uh, I, I think otherwise, you know, people love the hits. There's a song called I Love You, which was a big hit in America for a band called People. And it was a B-side for us. So people like that song. Uh, and I never realized that that would be so popular because, as I say, it was just a, a B-side for us. Anything from Odyssey and Oracle. So um, Carousel 44, A Rose for Emily, people really like. Uh, also, this, also, this will be our year. I feel like that's, 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 that's the one. 
This will also. be our year. Absolutely. People love that song. And in particular, they love it at weddings. People play that song at weddings. And my daughter's getting married on June the 2nd. Oh, congratulations. And, thank you. And I, I'm going to say there's been a request for me to sing This Will Be Aya, but it's, it's a little bit stronger than that. I've been instructed that I will be singing This Will Be Aya at my daughter's wedding. And I think Rod's going to be there. So I think he's going to play keyboard. So, oh, wow. Something for us to look forward to. This Will Be Aya is definitely a song that, that people, it means something to people. Like I've, I've played that for my wife at various times. I mean, we've just sort of played it in the house because I play that album all the time anyway. But that's kind of, especially when you've gone through rough years like we all have the last few years, yeah. having something like that, which is so kind of bright and looking forward. And, and it's just also a beautiful song. It just connects in a way that that's kind of the alchemy of art and music, I think, and that you recorded this you know, quickly in 1967. And here we are in 2022. And that song could just like move so many people's hearts. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's a, a wonderful combination because, I mean, it's a, it's a great title and the whole theme of the lyric, they're beautiful lyrics and they're delivered in quite a, a chirp. They're quite deep, the lyrics really, but it's delivered in quite a, a chirpy, upbeat melody. So it, it is, I think it's a really uplifting track and I certainly enjoy singing it. And a lot of these songs, you know, they just have a timeless feel and people often say to me, what's it like singing this song? She's not there. This will be our year, time of the season. Night after night, year after year. But they still sound as fresh and as relevant today as they did when they were recorded. And I just think I'm very lucky that uh, our sort of repertoire of music has this timeless feel. I'm, I, I love singing. The warmth of your love's like the warmth from the sun And this will be our year to the long time to come what do you do to preserve your voice? Because it still sounds fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, when I was younger, nothing. That's just me. Um, but as I got older, actually, Rod introduced me to a singing coach called Ian Adams, sadly no longer with us. So this would be 15 or 20 years ago. And he used to coach a lot of the West End singers so kind of people that would be singing on broadway so they have to have really accurate voices and they have to have strong voices because they're singing every night and he developed a particular technique which uh he, he coached me in that technique and he also gave me a set of exercises so that i learned just a bit about singing technique it's it's it really helps i recommend that to all singers you don't want to change your voice but just learn a little bit about singing technique and it, it will help you to be stronger. Have your, your voice will be stronger and probably more accurate. And um, he also gave me a set of exercises. And when we're on the road, I do those twice a day. I do them before sound check, when we do the sound check, and then I do them before the show. It's, it's, it's a, like a half an hour set of exercises. And I find that that really helps me. Um, when I was, it's different when you're younger. You can do things more naturally, but as you get older, your voice is, is just a muscle. And, you know, you can run forever when you're a kid, but you can't run forever as you get older. And it's the same with singing, I think. You just need to look after yourself a bit. Stay hydrated, very, very important. Eat sensibly, get lots of sleep. It's, 
it's not like when you're 19 and you're running wild when you're on the road. Um, it's not like that when you get older. You do have to look after yourself. That's good advice, whether or not you're saying it for that matter. Yeah, I mean, it's probably good advice in life in general, but absolutely for, uh, for guys on the road who are, you know, even their late 20s, you've got to start thinking about preserving your voice, I think. And, and one of the main things is just drinking enough water. It's amazing how many people don't drink water, and particularly singers. Your, your voice can just, compl- it's, this has happened to me. My voice has just dried up. It's gone. In the middle of a show, I, I had no voice. And I happened to have some water on stage, drank the water. I had a voice. It was, it was, it really surprised me actually that it could be so black and white. Hmm. You have to hydrate. Hydrate. Absolutely. Uh, were you, were you surprised uh, at the zombies being inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame? Well, I was a little bit. I was surprised more when we got nominated because you, if you think back to what I just said, when we got back together again, Rod and I, we had no idea of the popularity of the zombies. And so if you just take that on a few years, things had developed. You know, we, we had a, a, a solid fan base uh, after you know, 10 or 15 years. But it was a little bit of a surprise when we were nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But then I think we were nominated four years out of five years, something like that. And you start to think, well, we'll never be inducted. Um, I'd certainly got to that stage. I wasn't building up my hopes. And then, you know, it, it was just fantastically exciting that we, we were inducted. I think it's a huge honor. And uh, yeah, what a night. The night was at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, 17,000 people, and, and it was televised as well. And all these wonderful artists like uh, The Cure, Roxy Music, Janet Jackson, Def Leppard, Radiohead, and Stevie Nicks, and us. What a what a show that is! It was it was wonderful. It was a great year. That this was your year, so. Yes. Yes. No, it's always because I always have sort of mixed feelings about the concept of a Hall of Fame. But but when you see one of your favorite bands get that kind of recognition, you're just so happy about it because you're just like, oh, good. You know, it's like people sort of know that they're one of the, you know, the bands that is sort of the cornerstone of the music that we listen to. Well, I, I think all things like that, they've, all, they've always got their critics and I suppose they could always be done better. But my experience with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that, you know, they have lots of projects that they work on. Obviously, that is sort of the, the peak of their, how they're known by the induction ceremony. But they have lots of music uh, projects that they work on that lots of young kids are encouraged because of uh, uh, the Hall of Fame. And, um, and if you ever go to the museum, it, it's a fantastic experience. It's not just one night where people are presented with uh, whatever you want to call it, a trophy of some sort. Um, there's a whole program of music and support that uh, emanates from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They do a lot of good work and it's, it's quite it's sophisticated. And I, I think they do a fantastic job. Right. Great. And, and, you, and you, you and Rod have been working on a new album. Is that getting wrapped up or is that you're just going to play some songs from it on this tour? We are, yeah. Um, it's finished. And before I was talking to you, I was <laughs> I was trying to learn the new songs. Obviously, you know, 
you, it's kind of different when you, you're in the studio. You you know it how it is in the studio, but it's not quite the same as when you when you play it live. Well, not with me anyway. And also, a lot of these songs were recorded over the length of the the pandemic. So the earlier songs were recorded two years ago, and I have to remind myself uh, of what they are. So I've been doing a bit of homework this afternoon. I'm really looking forward to. I think we're doing. Um, to start off with, we're doing four songs from the new album. Uh, we might add a fifth one as the tour goes on. So that, I, that's going to be really exciting, I think. And when do you think the album's coming out? Uh, the short answer is I don't know. <laughs> but I would imagine uh, three or four months. I mean, the album is finished. Uh, the artwork's not finished. And I don't think the business side of it is is sorted out. So, you know, often people try to avoid releasing albums in the summer, but they traditionally always did. I mean, I don't know if they still do now. So if we can't uh, release it in the spring, it might actually not be released to the autumn. It's, it's just a matter of how quickly things come together. Does it have a title or a certain feel to it? It doesn't have a title. Rod's written most of the songs. So, uh, it's if you if you're familiar with his songwriting, that would be the feel of the album. But you know the zombies never sound like anybody else, as we discussed earlier on. So it's difficult really to describe it. But they're sophisticated songs played by really good musicians. The guys in the band are really hot players. They really are. Yeah, your last album was still got that hunger, which I think was. 2015 and you and you're bringing some of that kind of bluesier edge back to it you know mixing that in with yeah, you know, and the, the other thing we discovered with uh still got that hunger that we really enjoyed recording live with everyone in the studio at the same time so many times on, on records musicians play make their contribution on their own they and sometimes in their own studio and then they'll they'll send that in uh, to the main studio, so that the band sometimes never meets. And we wanted to go to the other extreme, and we've still got that hunger. Uh, we were all in the studio at the same time. It, the lead vocals and the solos were recorded live. The only thing we overdubbed was the backing harmonies. Otherwise, it, to all intents and purposes, it's a live album that was mm. recorded in the studio. And we decided to do the same thing. This was recorded in Rod's studio. He's just had it he had a studio in his old house, but he moved quite recently. And um, in his new studio, this is the first project, uh, the Zombies' new album was recorded in there. But we were all in the studio together at the same time. Not always easy with the pandemic. You know, oh, a lot of people recorded remotely during the pandemic, so I'm impressed you guys got it together. I know, especially as our latest uh, bass player, because sadly, great bass player, Jim Rodford, tragically died right. three years ago. Uh, but uh, Soren comes, he lives in Denmark. So we had to get over from Denmark. So that was, that was a performance really getting him over and, and getting him to play. He's a wonderful player. I mean, they're all very quick in the studio, very fast. Um, but we decided to do probably the opposite. This is a sort of, uh, story of our lives, really. We're doing the opposite to what everyone else is doing. And, uh, the album was recorded live. Well, I think it's great that you're continuing to make new zombies music and to perform it. And I can't wait to see you guys in Chicago soon. 
Well, absolutely. We're really looking forward to getting over and touring in the States. And, you know, I love playing in Chicago. And I remember that pub, that gig you were talking about, that was in the very early days. And I, yeah. I remember it really well. It was absolutely packed, wasn't it? I, I do remember it. And uh, it's it's made me look forward to, to, to playing in Chicago always. So, well, hopefully we'll see you there. And, you know, Old Town School also sounds fantastic and you're close up there too. So we'll continue it. Thanks for all of the the insights and memories and, and music uh, from over the years. I really appreciated uh, talking to you. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I, I've really enjoyed it too. And uh, look forward to seeing you in Chicago. That's it for episode 24 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Colin Bloomstone for being such a wonderful, generous guest. You can see the zombies on tour this spring and summer with an April 16th date at Webster Hall in New York, a July 1st stop at Chicago's Old Town School of Folk Music, and a July 23rd show at the Fonda Theater in Los Angeles. Go to thezombiesmusic.com for more information. Also, the 50th anniversary edition of Bloomstone's solo debut, One Year, came out last year and is worth checking out. Thanks, as always, to web developer Marty Rosenbaum and to Lou Carlozo, who recorded the Carol Pop theme. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who's always there and will never tell you no. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter, at Mark Caro, at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O, and at Pop one Also, visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Thanks. Thanks.